catching the bus from Farrington. Somebody gets in the bus, hijacks me. Some moke asked me for my money. What went through my mind was, guy, you gotta live someplace where you don't get hijacked and you're not catching the bus anymore. Getting off in SFO, Stanford van picks you up, drops you off. It was like I have arrived. This is it. I am so happy. You go to the mainland and oh my God, this is a humongous world with much bigger picture, much broader horizon. People think they have it figured out. And it's only with hindsight that you just basically continuously say, what was I thinking? To take a real financial example, I quit Apple twice. I turned down Steve for another job. What was I thinking? <laughs> Because if I had stuck around the first time, the second time, let's just say it might involve hundreds of millions of dollars. When you say remarkable, how are you defining that? When I die, I want people to say that I helped them make a difference. That's how I want to be remembered. I hope that my impact on Hawaii to the people who might know of me is that they can say, wow, this guy from Kalihi Valley went to Silicon Valley. And if he can do it, I can do it. Greater Good Radio, Connect, Learn, Heal and Grow is brought to you by Brain Gain Hawaii, a boutique executive recruiting, career development and coaching firm. Learn more at BrainGainHI.com. Today's guest is Guy Kawasaki who is basically a living legend to me. He grew up here in Hawaii, in Kalihi. Guy attended Iolani School, then Stanford, then UC Davis, and then UCLA. And he's well known for being a best-selling author, Canva and Apple evangelist, a venture capitalist, public speaker, and the host of the Remarkable People podcast. But to me, he's another Hawaii-born leader that I'm just honored to get a chance to connect with. So welcome to the show, Guy. Appreciate it. If we could start off, how would your mother... Explain to her friends who Guy Kawasaki is and what you do. She would most understand that I worked at Apple and that I was part of the Macintosh division. I don't know if she would exactly understand what I did because, frankly, most people don't understand what I did. But probably the easiest way, she, you know, my son worked at Apple. My son makes speeches. He writes books. That's probably it. Let's say your mom was talking to my mom. That's what she would say? I think so. And then how would you explain it? I would explain it that I have been an evangelist for both Apple and Canva. I am an author of 15 books. I make speeches and I host the Remarkable People podcast. So I have a story for you. I think I told you when we first met, right? I went to... Pono School, and then I went to University of Oregon. As I was skipping on my classes, I was cruising in the bookstore, trying to find books on how I can basically get out of school because I wasn't really going to school, even though I was at school. And I'm, I started looking at all the business books, right? So I come across yeah. this one book. I'm like, oh, how's this? Book. Let me try and look through it. It's about marketing. It's about evangelizing and stuff. And uh, brother, I still have this book. Uh I still have this book. Look at this. My hair has changed. <laughs> right? Yeah. And I found it in my house. And I got to prove to you. Look, I even underlined 
something in here. And I had to look at that because I looked through the whole book. I had one thing underlined. And what I underlined was vision. That is an insight that is not yet perceptible to most people. Right? You want to hear a funny story based on that? Okay. So I wrote that a long time ago. And I have subsequently come to believe that most people use the vision word too loosely and like in kind of a bullshit way, you know, like they have a vision for the future. They have a vision for all that. And, you know, I mean, there's a handful of people who could say that Steve Jobs had a vision. Elon Musk, before he went off the rails, he had a vision. But, I mean, honestly, if you're starting the fifth social media platform, you don't have a vision. You're just trying to copy something, okay? Let's just, like, not bullshit people. So I think very few people are visionaries. And I think one of the big tells is if you call yourself a visionary or a thought leader or an influencer or you know, stuff like that, you're full of shit. Basically, people should be saying that about you. You should not be saying that about yourself. But like, what is your vision that you don't tell anyone else about? Well, I'm kind of an open book. I hate to tell you. When I die, I want people to say that I help them make a difference. And whether that's my podcast, my book, my speech, my investment, my advice. That's how I want to be remembered. That's pretty much the same thing you said in this book in 1991. So you must... good. Huh? (laughs) It's been consistent then, right? So can you remember like when you first felt or thought that? Oh my God, not at all. You know, I first started writing books in 1987. It was called The Macintosh Way. And so in 87, I was born in 54, so I was 33. Is that right? Right. So let me say at 33, which is less than half of what I am today, I probably had no idea. I mean, you know, God bless you if you're 20s and 30s and you figured everything out. There's no way I figured that out in my 30s. Not saying that you figured it out, but when I was looking through this, it's a theme, even in your bio on your website. You know what I mean? There's always been that theme of like wanting to be more, do more. It's pretty well, present. Well, you know, I'd rather be having this argument where I'm trying to tell you that I didn't have everything figured out than to be having the opposite argument where I'm trying to convince you that I did have everything figured out and you don't believe me. So when was the time you remembered that you didn't have it figured out and then something came to you? It's a long process. And, you know, I know that at any stage, probably starting at 12, people think they have it figured out. And it's only with hindsight that you just basically continuously say, what was I thinking? To take a real financial example, yeah, I quit Apple twice. I turned down Steve for another job. So, you know, let's say three times. What was I thinking? (laughs) Because if I had stuck around 
the first time, the second time, or the third time. Let's just say it might involve hundreds of millions of dollars. So if you could go back and change that, would you? Well, probably not, because I am happy where I am. Not that I'm worth hundreds of millions of dollars, but I am happy where I am. And I also think that if I had stayed at Apple from 84 till today, I might really be an insufferable asshole or even more of an insufferable asshole because, you know, it would start become very hard to separate causation and correlation, right? So, you know, did I cause Apple to be a trillion dollar company or did I happen to be employed? Well, it did that. And I think when you're on a wave like that, it's very hard to separate the two. I think that's why a lot of times you see people who were very successful, you know, employee number 50 at Google, worth $100 million, spins out, starts a company, thinks that he or she has the magic touch because Google was so successful. And you find out, oops, you know, it ain't that easy. It's complicated. When I was going through your bio, it's really nice too because you have the short bio and then the longer bio. And I like the longer bio because it shows more color right in there. And then it says, <laughs> it says, Ponoho School is like USC. Iolani is like yep. Stanford. So what, what yep. do you mean by that? Well, I mean that the two schools are rivals. And USC, in my mind, is for rich kids. And Stanford is for smart kids. So... Now, maybe that's not so true anymore, but that's the way I look at it. Actually, that's an interesting thing because my friend from Iolani had, had told me something kind of similar to that. But I noticed, and this is stereotype, right, that Punho kids are typically outgoing. They typically talk star, this and that. And like a lot of my friends from Iolani are very, you know, they're, they're the ones I'm going to go sit next to in class because they're the ones who have all the knowledge, right? They're the responsible ones and so on. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I look at like kind of your career, I mean, you are the one front facing. You're the one out there. You're evangelizing. You're doing stuff, which is a little bit different from, you know. Imagine if I went to Punahou, how good I would be in marketing. Not so much even <laughs> that, because I mean, I think you would be who you are, regardless of what institution you're part of. But this is a very good question about nurture versus nature. And listen, I went to Kalihi Elementary. Sixth grade teacher convinces my parents to take me out of the public school system and put me into Iolani. Because I went to Iolani, I got into Stanford. Because I got into Stanford, I met the guy who hired me at Apple. And w whether you like it or not, whether it's fair or unfair, saying you went to Stanford is a proxy for assumed intelligence, competence, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not saying it's fully justified, okay? I'm just telling you that's what people think. And so if I had not gone to Iolani, I had not gone to Stanford, it's not clear to me that I would be where I am today. Is that teacher still alive? No, yeah. I wish. No. How did that conversation go then? 
at some PTA meeting or parent conference, she basically told him, you know, he's got potential. Get him out of here. Get him into a private school. I think it was that simple. Do you have any memories of Kalihi Elementary? Well, not Kalihi Elementary per se, as much as, you know, Kalihi, period. Your listeners may not be all familiar with Kalihi, but at least back then, it was lower income. We lived right off Likiliki Highway, about a mile from the overpass on Likiliki. It's not like I was living in the public housing, right, right there at the overpass. The neighborhood was very, very mixed race, and nobody was rich. I I don't want to paint this picture that I came from absolute poverty, and I had to overcome this crushing economic disadvantage. So, you know, we were probably poor, but I didn't know we were poor. We weren't poor like There's no money for food. We're homeless. I've interviewed people for my podcast who are that poor, okay? They didn't know where they're going to sleep every night. I never had that problem. So, you know, it's not like I'm Donald Trump Jr. So I didn't have that kind of silver platter life. But I certainly didn't have the life of, you know, I interviewed a woman for my podcast that She was smuggled across the U.S. border from Mexico as a little baby, grew up in a house with 15 kids or 15 people in a one-bedroom house, you know, et cetera, et cetera. That's not the kind of crushing poverty I, I grew up with. What would be your favorite memory from growing up in Kalihi? You're going to find this bizarre. So across the street from our house, there was this little stream, and when it rained, we used to go in that stream and build a dam out of mud. That's one of my favorite memories, actually. And, you know, we had a lychee tree. We had coconut tree. This coconut tree had just fantastic sweet coconuts. And my father, I don't know how he did it. He got a Hawaiian electric um, linesman equipment that you strap onto your boots so there's the hooks so you can climb up the tree. So he would climb up the tree and get the spoon meat across the street right next to the little stream that we used to dam up. There were guava trees and we used to pick guava and my mother would make guava ice cake, which is basically guava pulp, sugar and cream. and you know, it's stuff like that. So, you know, you spent so much time in Silicon Valley and kind of in this high-tech yeah. world. As you kind of contemplate now, what lessons did you learn in Kalihi or in Hawaii that would apply and help out Silicon Valley? Growing up in Hawaii, I think, was very advantageous because it was so diverse that it's not like I ever felt to be the subject of racism. If anything, being Japanese-American in Hawaii meant you were the power, you know, not the victim. I got to tell you, when I came to the mainland and I met Japanese-Americans born and raised on the mainland, it was a culture shock for me. I mean, these people were like rightfully just indignant about 
Manzanar and, you know, internment of Japanese Americans. And, you know, they kind of had this pent up anger and resentment that I just didn't have because, you know, some Japanese were interned in Hawaii, but very few. I mean, I didn't even know that happened until maybe 15 years ago. And so I didn't have that justifiable anger, but I didn't have that anger. And I certainly didn't have this feeling like, you know, the white man is suppressing me and the white man is the man and the white man is superior. Let's just say I did not have to get over things like that. So what was the most surprising thing when you first went to the mainland? Okay, so this is not as a tourist thing, but actually, you know, getting on Western Airlines, getting off in SFO, Stanford van picks you up, takes you to the dorm, drops you off. Let me tell you something. It was like, I have arrived. This is it. I am so happy. I just love the openness, the space, the pace, the potential. That you know, if I had remained in Hawaii back then, the obvious choices were restaurant, hotel, agriculture, right? There was no tech. And I mean, I'm not criticizing it, but you go to the mainland and you say, oh my God, this is a whole different world. This is a humongous world with, you know, much bigger picture, much broader horizon. So that was an absolutely eye-opening experience for me. And I'm glad I had it. Now, you know, you could say that, well, if the best and brightest of Hawaii go to the mainland and have this experience like Guy, they may never come back like Guy. That's true. That's true of me. That's true of Steve Case. That's absolutely true. But that's the risk you take. And, you know, would it be better for Hawaii if I never left and, you know, I worked in hotel business and I retired after working 40 years at the Ilikai. Would that be better for me and Hawaii? I mean, I hope that my impact on Hawaii to the people who might know of me is that they can say, wow, this guy from Kalihi Valley went to Silicon Valley. And if he can do it, I can do it. That's what I hope. Let's say that it was now, and knowing what you know now, but you had to stay here. What would you do? You can travel, but you know you were based here for whatever reason. You decided to be um, based here. I never moved back. Obviously, my career has been in tech, and there wasn't tech back there. And I don't mean you know for me, tech is not oh we're going to open up a call center for Hewlett Packard. And, you know, you're going to sit in a room and you're going to answer printer driver questions, right? It would be startups. It would be Apple and Facebook and Pinterest. You know, Google, that kind of thing hasn't happened in Hawaii. I don't want to appear judgmental because it's not my place to tell you that you cannot be happy unless you work for an Apple. Uh, that's not what I'm saying at all. Who am I to judge what makes you happy? 
So if you're happy living in Hawaii, God bless you. I'm happy living in California. God bless me. I'm not telling you what to do. Don't tell me what to do. It's just, you know, different strokes for different folks. So you mentioned Mike Boich, right? That's the guy. Yeah. That's your friend. You still talk story with him? Yes. Yes. So We're friends to this day. It's interesting because he said you was your roommate and then he helped you get that job at Apple. And then also yes. at Apple, you met your wife, right? So this guy yes. arguably is like the MVP friend. You know what I mean? He's um, the Tom Brady of my life. <laughs> yeah. So do you have a story involving Mike that would help us to have get a good idea of how important this guy has been like to you? In a perfect world, when you talk to somebody and you ask them a question like this, they have this really inspirational story about how I saw these people suffering or I saw this environment being ruined or, you know, I saw this and it moved me and I dedicated my life to it, you know, et cetera, et cetera, changing the world. But to be perfectly candid, when I was in high school in Hawaii, a family friend gave me a ride in his Porsche 911. And after that ride, I said to myself, Guy, this is why you got to study hard. And this is why you have to work hard. Because you don't want to live where you're driving a Toyota Corona every day. And then I'm going to tell you four stories that it's going to give you like a remarkable insight into my motivation and perhaps my shallowness, okay? So story number one, I get a ride in that Porsche. Story number two, somebody hijacks me on the bus at Farrington High School. So catching the bus from Farrington, somebody gets in the bus, hijacks me. Similar story, I get hijacked at Kaimuki High School, okay? What do you mean hijacked? Like they take you somewhere? What do you mean? You know, some moke asked me for my money. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> okay. So that happened twice, Kaimaki and Farrington. So what went through my mind was, guy, you got to live someplace where you don't get hijacked and you're not catching the bus anymore. Now, you started this with a question about Mike Boich. So now we're at Stanford. He becomes my roommate. He comes from a really wealthy family out of Arizona. So one Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever, I go home with him as opposed to Hawaii. And, you know, we walk out of the Phoenix airport and his father picks us up in his Rolls Royce. Okay. Like, Kalihi Valley, now riding in a Rolls Royce. Freaking, my head is exploding. We go to his house. His backyard is the golf course of the Arizona Biltmore Hotel. My head explodes again. The next day or so, we go out to dinner at the Arizona Biltmore Hotel. His mother asked me to drive her home in her car. This is a Ferrari Daytona, okay? Once again, I'm thinking to myself, Guy, this is why you got to study hard at Stanford. This is why you got to work hard because you can buy a Ferrari, so, in sum, what I'm telling you is one of the great motivational forces in my life was that I wanted to change 
the car, not the world. And if I had not had that ride in the Porsche and the Ferrari and been hijacked twice, not clear to me that I would have been as motivated as I have been to do what I did. So people listening to this, they can conclude one of two things. One is, what a shallow piece of shit this guy is. You know, all he cared about was the car and where he lived. Or, and my preferred interpretation, is that what motivates you is not important. It's important that you get motivated and then you deliver. So God bless you if you want to end world war. You want to end pollution. You want to end climate change. You want to foster literacy. You know, whatever. God bless you. But in Guy's case, it was the car. And then if you come to now, though, what would it be? Because you're still working. You're still doing stuff. You're still expressing yourself. What is it now? <laughs> Honestly, I think that I'm doing the best work of my career right now. And I'm just about to make 69 you know, lots of people would have retired by now, but, you know, I don't know what retirement means. Literally, what would I do every day if I was retired? Play golf and watch Fox? You know, right now, I'm still the chief evangelist of Canva, but that's doing so well. I couldn't hurt Canva if I tried. So, really, I focus on this podcast, and I'm writing this book based on the podcast to help people be as remarkable as the people in the podcast. Now, my podcast has very remarkable people like Jane Goodall, Stacey Abrams, Steve Wozniak, yeah, Ronnie Lott, Christy Yamaguchi, Roy Yamaguchi. So it's, it's a very lofty goal. And I do it because I think I have a, like a moral obligation. So if you were to draw circles, so one circle is I have access to people like I just mentioned. I have access to Jane Goodall. I have access to Wozniak. I have access, okay? So that's a group of people who have that access. The next circle is because of my 40 years of real-world experience, I know what to ask people like that. It's not like I've been a journalist my whole life, just asking people what they do, how are they done. I have had to do what I'm asking people about. This means that I can ask questions that are different from what a professional journalist would ask. So that's the second circle. And the third circle is, you got to have the balls to ask the question you should ask, even of remarkable people. And I think if you draw those three circles, I'm at the overlap of those three circles. I'm not the only person in that, but, you know, I'm one of the few people who have access to those people, know what to ask, and have the courage to ask. And that's just good fortune on my part. I think I'm one of the few people to have those three benefits. So I have the moral obligation to use it to get the knowledge. Because, you know, 
not that many people have access to Jane Goodall or know what to ask her or have the courage to ask her. So because I've been fortunate the way, I got to do it. And then the last reason is, I swear to God, you know, so the nature of my life is I have 52 podcasts a year. And it's not like I focus only on high tech. My focus is on remarkable people. They can be remarkable people in any field. In the recent last few weeks, I have had to understand spinal cord injury, creation of human hearts using pig hearts, okay? Taking a pig heart, making it into a human heart, spinal cord injury. I've had to understand the foster care system. I've had to understand, you know, physics. I've had to understand just Go down the line, and every week, it's a different subject. A few weeks ago, I interviewed Stacey Abrams, so I had to understand, you know, politics. And what this means, I hope, is that I have to keep my brain really active. So I think one of the benefits of my podcast is at least delaying dementia, because I don't have time to let my brain, you know, sort of stagnate. It's watching your career from doing the books, right? And then through your different business ventures and then the podcast and so on, that it almost seems like there is something that potentially you're looking for. Like, what is the theme? What are you looking for? I am looking for the ability that when I die... People will say, I helped them make a difference. You know, I don't want to be remembered, not that I would be, for creating, you know, a trillion dollars or a billion dollars or for building this building or whatever. I want thousands of people to say, man, that guy helped me learn how to make a difference. And I've heard that a number of times in this conversation as well, which then makes me go, the strategy of I want to get the car or so on. There's okay. a definite theme going here. So, you know, the cars, that was when I was like 16 to maybe 30, right? So because of my shallowness from 16 to 30, wanting a better car, I worked hard, I studied hard, I sacrificed, I got lucky, you know, blah, blah, blah. Now, that was then... Hopefully, when you go from 30 to 69, you learn stuff. So what worked back for me at 30, knock on wood, produced what you're hearing now at 69. I don't think it would be accurate to say, Guy, you're a much deeper person than you're letting on. Probably those cars didn't mean that much to you back in high school and college. I'm telling you with total certainty. They did. They really, really did. Now, thank you, God, they led to deeper discussions. But I'm telling you, back then, and you know what? I bet you that this is true for many people if they can admit it to themselves. Because, I mean, let's face it. You know, you don't go around telling people at 69, oh, I was motivated by getting a Porsche. 
right? I mean, that just makes you sound stupid and shallow and all that. So let's say you're an 18-year-old kid and you hear some, you know, really famous, successful person saying, oh, yeah, I was motivated by wanting to change the world and make the world a better place. And the 18-year-old is thinking, shit, man, I just... I want to work at Zippy so I can buy an El Camino and then I want to like fix up the El Camino so I can have a cool car. And then I, you know, I want to surf at bowls and I want to buy this new, you know, Kelly Slater board. That's why I'm working at Zippy's. I'm not trying to change the world. You know, I'm a bad person. I'm telling you, you're not a bad person. Go work for Zippy's, buy the El Camino, buy the Kelly Slater board, learn that working pays off. And who knows, 40 years from now, you're going to be saying, yeah, I wanted that Kelly Slater surfboard, but that led me to a work ethic that led me to success. Hallelujah. Thank you, Kelly Slater. You ever heard of an author named Resma Menachem? He wrote My Grandmother's Hands. No, no, I have, sorry, haven't. So this is an African-American, I think he's a therapist, but he was in the military and he writes these books. There's a quote that he says that I really like, which is, Trauma decontextualized in a people looks like culture. Trauma decontextualized in a family looks like family traits. And trauma decontextualized in a person looks like a personality. And then I <laughs> added my own, which is trauma decontextualized in a company looks like company culture. I think when I look through things kind of like in that lens, that's why I think I'm having a, you know, in the past, I would say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say, okay, yeah, yeah, guy, he kind of shallow on the car things, but I don't know, it's just not ringing to me. I can understand that because, you know, for the longest time, I wanted to just accomplish and buy stuff too. But there's like something more in there. My take is like, okay, so when you were young, you wanted to accomplish and buy stuff. Now, the question is, as you get older, did that change or does that define you, right? Is it like, is that all you can think of now that, yeah, you're in your 60s and you're still trying to buy art and you're trying to buy cars and you're trying to like own a casino or whatever, or do you have different goals now? So I'm just saying at the time, I had extremely shallow goals with hindsight. Now, you know, my goals are deeper. I want to empower people. But I will tell you, I still drive a Porsche. <laughs> you know how you have those top 10 lists? I noticed yes. like you're really good at taking wide concepts and then bringing them into something really easy to understand and digestible. So like even that little man, right? You said the little man on your shoulder, it's always asking like, so what? So what? Things like yes. that are so helpful. Maybe this was another, someone else might have said, but I call it like the guyisms, right? This is one guyism, right? <laughs> like the little man on the shoulder are only going to do 10 yeah. slides or I'm going to have, you know, the you know 30 point font or something. It's a guyism, right? Yeah. Where does that lead me when I'm bringing this up? I was listening to the Carol Dweck podcast yeah. that you just did, right? And Carol yeah. Dweck, and you talk a lot about growth mindset, right? Which is continuing to try to move forward and build resilience and so on. And then that brought me into thinking about, well, what is the growth heart set? You know what I mean? Because with yeah. the mindset also comes what's going on here in the heart. A lot of times the we want to stay small because we don't want to open like this up. Right. First of all, heart mindset is a very good term. There's a growth mindset, right? Which is I'm going to yeah. make it through it. Like 
David Goggins, which is, I don't give a shit. Both of my legs are broken and my arm is cracked. I'm still coming. You know, it's like, okay, you got that one going. But what about the invisible stuff? Like the heart. Well, if I were trying to define a heart mindset, I would say that it's principles like, I think you can come to a conclusion that people are more similar than they're different. That, you know, you may think you're a liberal, you have nothing in common with a conservative. You, you probably have 90% in common. You may differ about 10%, but 90% you probably have it in common. So that's part of the heart mindset. I have come to this conclusion in my life that, you know, when you are in Silicon Valley and you're successful, you develop this attitude that you're the big swinging, you know what, and you're the top of your game and you're like, you're large and in charge. And what I have figured out is that just about everybody you meet, they are better than you at something. Now, it may not be that society pays for that something, but, you know, th this person that you're looking down upon can make a much better tortilla than you can. Or this person that you're looking down on can raise fruit trees much better than you. Or this person that you're looking down on can make a much better podcast than you could ever. And so, you know, when you're walking around and you think you are just God's gift to creation, you need more humility because I guarantee you that person that you just yelled at at the United Airlines check-in counter could kick your ass longboarding. And I think that's a very important thing to understand that, you know, you know, you ain't perfect. What I know is that anytime that there's going to be some praise or something going on, you will do like Hawaii style and be like, and kind of come back and do some self-deprecation. On your bio I read here, it says, he lasted one week because he couldn't deal with <laughs> law school teachers telling him he was crap and they were going to yeah. remake him. Yeah. Right? How does that play into your focus on being remarkable? And what is remarkable, you know? Well, that is an absolute true story. So I went to law school for two weeks and the whole thing just intimidated the shit out of me. I just could not deal with this, you know, pressure that the professor is going to call you up and say, so Mr. Kawasaki in Smith versus Arizona, you know, what was the uh, whatever, right? You know, and like, God forbid, you don't know Smith versus Arizona and you, know, you don't know whatever, right? So that, that fear so intimidated me, I dropped out of law school. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. So one is, you know, quitters don't win. That's one level. Another is, you know, you work so hard to get here. Why'd you give up? And I can tell you that I've interviewed like 200 people for remarkable people. I can't recall of a case where Jane Goodall didn't say, yeah, I went to Oxford for two weeks in biology and I quit. Like nobody has told me they quit anything. I don't think it's because none of them have quit anything. 
But you don't volunteer that unless you're crazy like me. I volunteer that. And so the motivation for volunteering that story is, first of all, it's a very interesting story. Secondly, it's kind of funny. And third, and perhaps most important, is that, you know, there's this fear that if you quit anything, it's a slippery slope. And pretty soon you're a quitter, right? So you quit law school. Next thing, you quit everything because you're a freaking loser. And there's this paranoid fear that, especially among Asians probably, that, you know, once you start quitting, you cannot stop. And I am proof that you can quit something and still succeed. And so I think it's important that, you know, for this kid of some tiger mom or tiger dad who just quit violin and thinks, oh my God, you know, this is the end of my life that I'm a failure. I quit something. I'm a loser, blah, blah, blah. It is not true, you know? Yeah. And that's kind of that story I think you shared about Julia Child, where you said that she was working, yeah. I think it was in the CIA or so on, and in France, and then that's where she learned about cooking. So to me, the interesting piece on that is maybe the remarkableness of somebody is already there, and then it's more about kind of letting that shine through. Or it grows. One of the important things that people who read nonfiction should understand is that very little business nonfiction is scientifically sound. And by that, I mean, yes, I can tell you the story that Julia Child was in the CIA, very successful in the CIA, but obviously she became famous for French cooking. So the moral of that story is, Yes, you can change horses in the middle of the stream and still succeed. But people should understand that Julia Child is one example. Maybe, statistically, people who change in the middle of the stream are more likely to drown than succeed. So one of the things I write about in my book is whenever you hear these kinds of stories, you got to ask, what's missing? And the example I use is that many people tell the story that Zuckerberg, Jobs, and Gates did not finish college. And the conclusion is, you don't need to finish college to be successful. And in fact, some people take that even further and say, going to college is either going to delay or prevent true success. So, you know, let's say a kid hears that, goes to his parents and says, hey, Zuckerberg, Jobs, Gates, they didn't finish college. I don't need to go to college either. Okay. You got to ask the question, what's missing? And what's missing is the fact that Dan Simons, who did this work, he and his research buddy, partner, you know, they figured out that all the CEOs of the unicorn companies in that year, every one of them went to college. So you only hear about the three exceptions that happened over a span of 30, 40 years, Gates, Jobs, Zuckerberg. You don't hear about the thousands of successful CEOs who did go to college. You also don't hear about the thousands of 
unsuccessful people who went to college. And you don't hear about the thousands of unsuccessful people who didn't go to college. So you got to think of all the conditions, not just the three that you hear about and figure out that that's the wisest path. The other thing about that is Zuckerberg and Gates both were going to Harvard and Gates well, took his helps, SAT yeah. twice to get a perfect, you know, it's a different story. Yeah, time. but I mean, listen, I'm not saying I'm telling you it's good to be dumb. The issue I'm addressing is, well, you could make the case that those two people were admitted to Harvard. So clearly they were smart, but, you know, maybe what you should think is, okay, you don't need to go to college if you're that smart, then you could be successful. But if you're not that smart, maybe it would help. I I could also make the case if you're that smart and you go to college, that would really be the best case. Hard to tell. Yeah. So when you say remarkable, how are you defining that? When I say remarkable, it means that you've made a difference, that you've made the world a better place, and you have, you know, grown as a person. So it's not because you're worth a lot of money or you're rich or you're famous. Now, there are remarkable people who are rich, famous, you know, influential, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not what made them remarkable. What made them remarkable or why people consider them remarkable is because of how much they've made a difference. Can you just be remarkable or do you have to do remarkable? You have to do. You know, I'm writing this book about how to be remarkable. And I think the way it works is if you make a difference, if you make the world a better place, if you have a remarkable accomplishment like that, then people will label you as remarkable. Now, you don't have to be Jane Goodall. You don't have to be Steve Jobs. You could be remarkable by making the world a better place and making a difference for a Kalihi Elementary school kid or a Kalihi Elementary classroom, right? You could be high school football coach at Kahuku High and you've made a difference for those kids. You've made the world a better place. You can be remarkable. You don't need to be Steve Jobs. For me, that's the test. And I'm trying to help people do that. So who would you say has been the most remarkable person in your life? Either my father or my wife. My father, really, he inculcated in me such values, such work ethic, such moral you know, perspectives. My mother also, I mean, my mother and my father, for sure. Could you share a story about either your mother or father that demonstrated what you felt was remarkable? So my wife and I, we had one baby. We were living in San Francisco on Union Street, right where Union Street dead ends into the Presidio. So for people in Hawaii, I would say that's the equivalent of living on you know, Kahala Avenue, okay? It is a very, like the Hyman Head, Kahala Avenue. So we're living there, and I'm not telling you to brag where I was living. When you hear the rest of the story, you understand why I got to tell you that. So 
One day I'm outside of my house on Kahala Avenue slash Union Street, and I'm trimming the bougainvillea hedge. And this Haole woman comes up to me and says, do you do lawns also? And I said to her, uh, you're asking me if I do lawns because I'm Japanese and you think I'm the yard man, right? And she says, you know, no, no, no. You're just doing such a great job. I just, I'm looking for a yard man and you look like you're doing a great job. Okay, so, you know, there's a lesson right there about racial profiling, right? Japanese, cutting the hedge, must be the yard man. But that's really not the lesson in this story. So. A couple weeks later, my father visits me and I tell him this story. I'm Sansei, right? Sansei went to Stanford, worked for Apple, wrote books, blah, blah, blah. My father, Nisei, became a state senator, you know, successful guy in Hawaii. So I tell him this story and I fully expect him to just go off like, how dare this woman? Ask you if you're the yard man. You went to Stanford. You work for Apple. You've written, you know, six books. How dare this Howley woman ask you this? Instead, he says to me, you know, son, on Union Street, Japanese man cutting a hedge. Statistically, you were the yard man. So get over it. And I got to tell you, that was a pivotal moment in my life. Because I learned, you know, like, don't look for trouble. Give people the benefit of the doubt. Even if they're wrong, laugh it off. You know, don't go all nonlinear on people. Don't, like, get offended every time you can be offended. That was a pivotal moment in how I lived the rest of my life. It takes a lot to offend me. And then how about your wife? A story about your wife. Oh, my wife is my compass. <laughs> She is the brains in my family. People think that, you know, guy, you're all the flash and all that, but she's the brains, trust me. <laughs> so can you share a story about your wife that would illustrate to us how special she is? As I say, she's the compass. She's who I go to. And she has convinced me not to do a lot of stupid things. So I don't, I don't want to really tell you the details of some of these stories. <laughs> Let's just say she's my compass. And you know what? She has raised four great kids, which is a major accomplishment. I mean, for sure. I got four too. I would say the yeah. same thing for my wife. Can I just ask you one other question? This is on a side note. Yes. I know that you're busy. I know that you're big time. So what made you decide to come on this show and conversation oh, with me? One of the principles I live by is... I default to yes. So my perspective is always say yes. Always be thinking how you can help people. Now, don't get me wrong. There are plenty of people who have heard me say no, okay? But it's just, if somebody, like, you can see is sincere and wants to give you a platform to perhaps do some good or whatever. I say yes, you know, and I, I don't know if you have five subscribers, 5,000, 50,000, 500,000, or 5 million. For all I know, only your mother 
father, sister, brother, and wife are going to listen to this podcast. Makes no difference to me. So, you know, I mean, another thing my father would tell me is, listen, guy, it's only a freaking hour out of your life. You know, like, now, if you had called me up and said, I live on the east coast of Canada. I want to interview you. Will you please fly to Nova Scotia? And I'm going to interview for an hour. Let's just say the answer would be no. <laughs> I would tell you we can do it by Zoom, but I ain't taking two days out of my life. And then, so there's that. I think this obligation I feel to help others, you know, with their podcasts since others help me. And I lean towards helping anybody from Hawaii. And there's really two reasons. One is just, you know, the aloha spirit, right? So that's 90% of it. But to be quite honest, there's also sort of a negative aspect too, which is, you know, guy, Hawaii is a small place. If you turn him down, what if he says, you know, that guy Kawasaki, that asshole, he wouldn't come on my podcast. He is too freaking big for his britches. He thinks he's such hot shit. He doesn't help to help local people anymore. And you know what? I really want to prevent that. So, <laughs> so for those reasons, I said yes. I just want to thank you for doing this with me, spending the time with me. I want to acknowledge you for everything that you have accomplished, but more, I think, especially now, like who you actually are. I appreciate the fact that you came on here and we're able to connect and All right. just wanted to send you a lot of aloha and mahalo. Thank you. So. Me too. I want to send you aloha and mahalo. All the best to you. And thank you for starting half an hour later. I could surf that much longer. <laughs> right on. Right on. Okay. okay. Thank you, guys. Have a great weekend. Thank you. If you resonate with Greater Good Radio, please join our community at www.greatergoodradio.com, where you can get access to exclusive content and offerings. Hope to see you soon.